I'm sure you recognize that song, Iconic Journey, Don't Stop Believing. And that's also the name of a book by Journey member Jonathan Kane. Over the next 30 minutes, we'll hear Jonathan share a lot about his life, including his journey of faith, his parents, a third-grade tragedy, lessons learned from previous marriages, advice he received from Stevie Wonder, Joe Montana, the story behind the song Don't Stop Believing," and so much more. In the notes for this podcast, I've listed timestamps for various portions of our interview if you would like to access specific parts directly. Jonathan, when I first got the book, I was blazing through it. So well-written, so uh, interesting. Your life, your journey, wow. Even so many memories from when you were very young. I remembered everything. My memory served me well. You know, It was just like one of those, wow. And that encouraged me, you know, because I, when I started, I thought, well, how much should I really remember? Oh, I remember everything, you know. And there's so many stories I left out, mm-hmm. you know, because we had to get the book under 400 pages. It was 300, right? Yeah. The original one was 500. Wow. You know, there was many more childhood stories and many more things that happened. But we just, I took the highlights. I worked with a really good editor, uh, Travis Thrasher. He, uh he said, "I love this book, but we got to cut it." <laughs> he said, "Someday you can you can release the whole version that you have, but you know, uh, right now this is where we're going." So he got me to really get disciplined. And um, when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony happened, I stood on stage with all those guys, and I knew how the book was going to begin. I had been searching for an intro. How am I going to get the Journey fan engaged mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. here? And then I knew how the book was going to end, standing next to Steve Perry. And that magical conversation we had back in 1981 about a timeless song, you know, and could we do one? Will we have one? Yeah. Oh, we do. <laughs> so a good way to end the book, you know. <laughs> well, I wanted to start a little bit um, talking about your dad. Uh, I, he, he almost feels like the dad I wish I was at times to my kids, such yeah. the encourager. Well, he was, and he was absent a lot, was crazy. Um, I think he felt like he had to make up for for being gone so much, you know. So when he was with us, he was fully engaged, mm-hmm. you know. And a big part of two big things that I can remember was um, the hugs he would give me, you know, at night I mean, he was more affectionate than my mother was, you know. He was very affectionate. I had a balance. My mom was a tough love, and he was a big sweetheart, you know. And he used to have this beard, and it would kind of rub my face a certain way, and I just thought, that's my dad, you know. And uh, so it was golf on Saturdays and church on Sunday. If I wanted to see him, I'd have to be at the golf course, and i have to be at church, you know, uh, to be with my, my, uh, my hero here. There goes my hero, that song. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I figured out I could be a caddy, so I caddy for him. And I, I kept my mouth shut with his buddies, and, you know, they had their card game, and I had to sit there all day. But I was with my dad. I, I didn't care. Uh, and then on Sundays, we'd go to uh, to church together, all of us, and um, I'd watch him pray. He, he was very, very um, sort of, you know, you could kind of see where he's going to go for the pew. He'd get, get down on the pew with his missile before the mass even began, you know, and started praying to Jesus. I mean, it was just, I'd never seen anything like it. And I thought, what is he? seems like he, sometimes he cries. I go, why are you crying, dad? You know, and he's, those are tears for Jesus, you know? And I said, well, how am I going to pray to Jesus? And he said, oh, you just have to call for him and tell him he's your savior. 
you know, okay. So, man, I went at it, you know. <laughs> I was going to get my Jesus on me, you know. And I'm kneeling, you know, in the morning, kneeling at night going, ain't coming, you know, ain't coming. I don't feel it. And then I had a, some kind of breakthrough in church. And I, I looked at him and I said, I got a warm glow, Dad. It came over me, you know, and he's like, well, he, he must have heard you, John. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so that didn't bode too well with the with the nuns later on in school because you know you had to pray to Mary. You you yeah. couldn't you couldn't get through Jesus. He was too busy. You know, <laughs> oh man. So uh, I had to, I had to stop all all that. But my father really loved. Uh, he just Jesus was it, man. And uh, he came from uh, an area where there was a seminary. I could never understand his deep, devout faith. And then when I did more research, he was from this area called Scholastica, where um, two nuns had built one of the largest seminaries in, in Arkansas, huh? Scholastica. And um, I said, it's, it must be in the water then, you know. He was drinking the water. But his he went to church with his grandma, you know. Okay. So he's always been, you know, a Christian uh, great Christian man, you know, and, and, and just, you know, to the letter, my mom had to, you know, get get Catholic and take catechism class. And she was Lutheran and her, um, brothers hated Catholics, you know? Okay. So, uh, my dad was kind of forbidden fruit, you know, really for her. And they put up quite a stink and, and he withstood it all, man. He just went, "Mm." It can run me off. This is my this is my gal. She's my woman, you know, and I'll, I'll win you over. Well, you're nothing but a hillbilly Catholic and all this, you know. A hillbilly Catholic. Uh, and uh, this is my aunt telling me all this because I, I, I got a lot of stories from her. In, in the end, they, uh, you know, he just won them over. They, uh, they gave me best friends and picnics and families, and they were all like brothers in the end. So it was really God healed and all, you know. Well, I guess in coming out of that music was not foreign to your dad. I love the fact that he encouraged you in things that other fathers might be. Well, that's not exactly exactly because his dad was was a musician and and his brother was a musician and he wanted to be one. He didn't quite have the the talent he had. He could play a little guitar, but, you know, he admired it as a vocation, you know, and knew that, hey, you know, if. Chet Atkins can make albums and Al Hurt and, you know, Hank Williams, and you could be the next Hank Williams, you know. And he encouraged that writing aspect to me. Yeah. Well, I think for everybody that's in Nashville that's working at Starbucks or doing things that they want to get into the music business needs to read your book to understand uh, the process. I mean, you, you worked your way into things, and it was nose to the grindstone. It's not an overnight thing. Right. You you know, you learn how to be, you know, an entertainer, I guess, first. You know, get your get your chops up. Can you entertain a crowd? Can you hold their attention? Can you give them a, a decent evening? Uh, and then, you know, you got to go about the business of, uh, what do they say in the Beatle movie, the horseshoe makes the, the iron and the, and the horse takes the horseshoe, you know. So you learn, yeah, now you have to learn how to, to do that. And so that became the writing process. And, you know, then the, then the songs were performed live, you know, the, the original songs. And then you usually get complaints from the club owner, you know. What are you doing playing that? That's not on the hip parade. You know, it's not on the charts. Uh, we need more disco. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, snuck in the studio. I, I, we saved money for studio time. And, and I went down the, uh, to this uh, studio in Pekin, Illinois, where uh, Dan Fogelberg used to make his albums. That first demo that I made, um, 
was heard by Buddy Killen in Nashville, and he signed me at 19 years old. I came here on my first airplane trip to Nashville, Tennessee, to sign my record deal on Dial Records. And Buddy, you know, was Mr. Tree Publishing. Um, what a treat to work with him. And the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. That was his band. He brought studio band. <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's a who's who to go through and see, you know, all the connections and all the people. And, and God, can. God really uh, showed me greatness along the way. And, you know, I kept wondering well, when, when, when was the time for me to be great, you know? And he kept saying, oh, nah, not yet, not yet. It's not your turn yet. It's not your season, you know? And patience um, was something. And I had to, I had to block the seeds of frustration and, and, uh, discouragement and and you know pick myself up and keep going talk a little bit about third grade when i got to that chapter and what you experienced and how that impacted you through the rest of your life man um yeah you know out of pain something new was born that's what the word says and i believe that that tragedy where on december 1st 1958 92 children and three nuns were were perished in a in a terrible blaze and probably one of the worst school fires in history you know at least one close to one of them um it's still uh studied i think it changed the fire laws for school safety school fire safety for the world um after that fire they had a world inquiry and everybody came from all around the world how can we not have this happen you know and I think all of everybody put their heads together and said, this is what we need to put in place for all schools. And then next year, man, the uh, sprinkler system was mandatory. All Pretty much every state after that fire took it up that these schools all need sprinkler systems. They all need fire extinguishers that are not seven feet up in the air. That's where ours were. Who could get to that? You need a ladder to get to it. In a panic mode, who's doing that, you know? Two and a half stories don't work. You know, you can't put a school in two and a half stories because you can't get the ladders to the second floor. The only way they got that fire out was with this uh, brand new fire truck that had a snorkel on it. And it turned out that our fire commissioner, Quinn, had he's seen the phone company and he'd order a truck like this. It was used one time. And it came to our school after it was a five alarm fire, and it put that fire out in nearly five minutes. Wow. It was out. Wow. And because they could go up high with the hose like that, you know, like super up there, way, I mean, the thing was probably at the, its limit. And then the fire all started in the roof and burned its way down. So it created a ton of smoke, blinding black smoke. You know, they couldn't see anything. Yeah, and it happened very, you know, it was about. I waited about 20 minutes outside the school before the thing really started raging. It was it was one half hour till school got out, and that's what was so hard for me. Lord, make it! Don't let these you know kids perish like this. You know, and I I was spooked, you know, because they told us about hell and purgatory, and I'm like, well, wait a minute, this is right next to the house of God, what? They did nothing wrong. What? How? How did this? You know, and you have a lot of questions. And the little kid that wanted to be a priest at that point wasn't so sure anymore. You know what? They, they must have missed something. You know, my mother really got bitter. The church hiding the evidence and not coming forth. And, you know, it's their fault now. You know, I, to this day, it's nobody's fault. You know, it, the enemy just used perfect things to, to make chaos happen. It was a perfect storm to happen because of 
the negligence that was everywhere and the bureaucracy of the church in places that they didn't have to do this, so they mm-hmm. they paid for it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what the enemy loves to do. It takes puts evil in what you love. You know, and boy, that, I wouldn't give the enemy credit for that fire, but I give him credit for all the shenanigans that went on. You know, and you know, took a arson kid that was a pyromaniac started the thing and yeah it was the the aftermath you know the next day what do you do you wake up you're in shock my father comes to me and says you've been saved for a reason john i'm like what's the reason dad he goes it's music i'm taking you to music school lord spoke to me you're going to music school yes sir and off i went you know and i ran to music school because i want to go to any place but that place that I was in that next day, you know. And uh, it was difficult for all of us uh, to get on with our, with our lives, you know, it really was. So looking back on the tragedy of the school fire, you're able to see how God used it to guide your path. Yeah, the, the whole thing became a redemption, you know, on a way back to God. I, I guess my wife Paula, she preaches that God rides on the waves of sound, you know. And you can please him that way, you know. So I kind of started my way back to the Lord through my music, you know, learning to play. And and then I was singing a lot. I was singing in the church choir. I was singing Gregorian chants. My first singing job was in the boys' choir, singing uh, Pope Gregory's music, you know, mm. <laughs> the mm. first worship music ever. So here I am back singing worship, <laughs> you know, but it was great. I, then my voice changed and they kicked me out. <laughs> that was dramatic. I'll tell you what. Talk a little bit about uh, lessons learned uh, from previous marriages, things yeah. that might be uh, yeah. wisdom for those. To- I want to write a book on this. I really do. Um, because a failed marriage doesn't mean you're a failure. Years spent like that is not wasted years. It, you know, you try, everyone tries in, in a relationship and it's a very delicate balance. And, and I think in both failed marriages, in my case, I could say the Lord was not the foundation without the presence of the Holy Spirit and the commitment that he is the head of the triangle between the two of you, that without the Jesus piece, it's not going to work. You know, it, the enemy can get in and take your joy. He comes to steal and destroy, you know, and in every marriage, when you have God and he's your centerpiece in your family, you are impenetrable. You can always work it out because why? Because, you know, you went to church with the Lord, you know, you were, you married with the word being read, prayers being said, real commitment. And I didn't have that. Do you pray together? Do you take communion every Sunday together? Do you? If you don't, then you're leaving yourself susceptible, you know, to to supernatural forces that would love to tear you apart. You know, you know, that's and that's what I've learned with Paula is that we we take it seriously. This marriage, I mean, of mine, there's a lot of people that don't want us to succeed. You know, there's a lot of they'd love to see us break up and and, you know, there's haters out there going to hate on us. And some people hate me because I'm married to her hate journey because she's Trump's spiritual advisor. I mean, really. So I always say to them, you know, she prays for him. And if the, what's wrong with that? He is our president. I don't know where, where, where you would rock your hiding under, you know, but he is our president and he does need prayer. And um, 
This is one president that has brought all walks of Christianity and faith together in one room. It's it's unbelievable. And, it, you know, you got the Southern Baptists, you got the Baptists, you got the Pentecostal, you got the Evangelical, you got Catholics, you know, don't matter. Lutheran, everybody's there and everybody wants to help, which is really great because I think the, the whole thing that's been missing is the church can help. And it used to, you know, it, 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 it civilized the modern world. We have to remember. And Trump's first thing that he said was, you got to get your voice back. You know, you're splintered. You're not unified. The whole church needs to get its voice and you need to get your liberties back. The liberties that have been taken. I wanted to get a little bit of take on some of the advice that you talk about in the book, because I thought those were some some interesting little nuggets in there uh, from Joe Montana. I asked him one time, you know, coming off a of Super Bowl, what do you do, Joe, and uh, how do you prepare, prepare for the next season? And he said, uh, hey, um, I act like it didn't happen. I said, what do you mean? He says, I, I hide my ring. He said, I, I forget I even had one. I go to practice like I need to win the Super Bowl. And I'm like, but you already you know. He says, no, I, I, I forgot that happened. I just rub it out. Nope. And he said, I put that ring in the drawer and I don't look at it. And I went, so that's what I did with Frontiers. You know, I took that approach when I had the follow-up escape, which was nine million seller. You know, I I just got hungry. I said, I'm hungry to get played on the radio. So I said to Perry, let's write some radio hits. Stevie Wonder gave you some advice too, right? Stevie Wonder had great advice. Uh, Don't leave too many songs laying around unfinished. He said, um... It just clutters up the mind. And he said, uh, you finish them regardless of what you think of them sometimes. Just get them done. And don't leave, you know, on on pieces laying around because that's just clutter that will build up on you and you won't be able to have any confidence going forward. With every song you finish, you get some confidence. Lennon and McCartney got together with some pretty lousy songs when they first started. Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, I'm just, I'm watching their their documentary and they wrote lousy songs you know until they finally hit the right note you know but i mean it so it's a process and and i think you finish them we we knew that the good songs were going to come we just knew it would be a matter of time and it always came and always happened because we both we both all of us trusted each other that's one thing we had in journey we trusted each other and i think isaac hayes my notes there was uh isaac hayes yeah i asked him how'd you all of a sudden become a superstar he said, I've always been a superstar. What, what do you mean? He said, I've been doing this my whole life. It's people finally just caught up to it. I've been so full my whole life. And so I hadn't realized how many hits he had written at Stacks. You know, he was a darn producer. You know, he was behind the scenes quietly, you know, taking in mailbox money, working with Sam and Dave and all that stuff. Um, so when it was his turn to be great, he was great. And he did it quite easily. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about the song, and your dad gave you that line. Don't he stop. sure did. He sure did. I was uh, struggling in Hollywood, needing some money. My dog got hit by a car. It was like, oh, $900 vet bill. She lived, thankfully, but I had to pay the doctor, you know, in payments. So that was cutting in everything, and my I, my, I called my father for a loan, and I said, I just give up on this thing. It doesn't seem to be working out. Maybe I should come home to Chicago. And he said, son... You stay put. Don't stop believing. So I wrote it down on this lyric book and, and and kept it like a prayer in the back of my lyric book and took it with me up, you know, through the years, probably four or five years. And then 1981 hit, um, and Perry looked at me and said, "What else you got in that magic book of yours?" Like that. And I said, 
well, let me go look, <laughs> you know. So there on the back page was, was Dad's saying, you know, and I'm like, oh, Steve would sing this in a heartbeat. But I need to make something that, that'll soar, at least an idea. So I wrote those chords in the chorus. Don't stop, you know, hold on to that feeling. And brought it in, and the rest is history. The, the band, Neil and Steve, uh, helped me finish that because I trusted them, you know, and I knew it would be bigger than anything I could do by myself. So you have the trust, but then you also talk about tension being good? Yeah. Yeah, well, you had this tension, you know, and then, like, you know, I sing, but Perry didn't want me singing, you know, and I understood it because he's a phenomenal singer and he's the sound of Journey. You know, could I have sung in Journey? Sure. But that was his territory. So he's going to guard it at all costs. You know, I, I went in and tried couple songs you know and particularly there's one song that i always thought could have been a journey song called allies that i had written and i i sounded great on it he he made maybe do it in his key so he could try to sing it and it didn't sound good and he was miffed you know there's that tension you know but i learned something there that you know we'll do, we'll save that for something else we're not going to do that you know it doesn't feel right. I didn't necessarily like that. You know, and then Neil kind of was, mm, these ballads you're writing, John, I, you better stop. You know, there's, you know, and then Perry said, I'll keep them coming. And I love them, you know, and there, there's that tension again. But, you know, we came in with open arms and Neil looked at us cross-eyed, you know, like, what? Luckily, we had a great manager who kind of, Herbie, who, uh, and this is all in the book, uh, who kept everybody, uh, everybody in check pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and then we, he lost control of it too, um, but egos can can really ruin a band, just like a marriage, you know. Well, it's interesting because it sounds like you've been in a position over your career of kind of this 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 middleman, this like can we all just get along kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, that's from the baseball years, you know. Um, I've been in winning teams and losing teams playing ball, you know, and I realized one thing that we all, we all need to be brothers on the bench, you know. And we've got to encourage each other when things aren't going great, you know. Lift each other when we're down. Lift yeah. them, you know. And, you know, you strike out. And you'll get it next time, you know. <laughs> you throw a bad pitch. Like I can remember, you know, in a world all-star game in Little League, and I, you know, I got this guy inside hard fastball inside high. He took me yard. Took me right. I mean, I, that was he was a walk-off home run. I never pitched again. <laughs> I was like, that's my last pitch right there. Because I, I lost the damn Arsar game. I'm like, oh, Lord, you know. <laughs> but I got consoled. You're still a great ball player. Don't worry about it, you know, like that, you know, by all my friends. And even the catcher said that was almost unhittable. I don't know how he even did it. He just big, tall guy, you know. Yeah. I should have thrown him a low hard one. <laughs> Let him go fishing. There was... um. A letter that you received after your father passed that yeah. I thought was pretty Yeah, powerful. it was pretty powerful. My aunt had seen my dad and I at a family reunion and felt compelled to send me this letter. And she said, I'm so happy to see how you harvested his beliefs. You harvested his beliefs in you. And I, and then she wrote capital H-I-S. And I thought that might be a, does she mean the Lord right there? Or she mean my dad? And I thought, aha, it's one and the same. The Lord is my dad, pretty much, you know. We have this Heavenly Father connection. You know, our fathers can be the truth. And he was for me. It was very anointed, you know, spiritual man. So, um, and this was after he had passed away. And it really put everything in perspective for me, you know. I understood that through prayer, when I was offline with the Lord, he was praying over me, making sure I was covered. 
that you know that things would be okay and the angels would be at work and i think he prayed that john's just a little confused right now he's coming back he'll be back you know and that was my dad just praying for all of us boys you know because that's what his his fatherly prayers were was was success for all of us and all of his kids ended up being you know very successful and my youngest brother was golfer you know did really well you know in golf and still is in the golf business yeah one more song only the young oh yeah it was the hardest song i think i ever lyrically for me to put pin a lyric on because we only had had the melody and the track would and perry was just yodeling kind of scatting these way 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 you know i'm like oh boy what is that you know and had no clue um I think probably five weeks went by, and I had this cassette player on my um, on my kitchen table, and I wake up in the morning with coffee and play it, listen, listen, walk around listening. What is it? It was a great track. I loved it. I got to get a lyric for it, you know. And all of a sudden, um, I hear it in my head. It's only, only what? Only the young, the young, the young. What can only the young can say? Perfect, you know. So I called up Perry. I said, I got it. This is right before we went in and record. We wrote the lyric out, Another Night in Any Town. You can hear the hunger of their cry, you know. So this song comes out great, and I think it's one of the main pieces of the Frontiers album. I am completely in love with the way it felt on that album. And then I go to Europe with the ex-wife. She's singing, uh, you know, she had a career, a singing career, so she went to Europe to do some stuff. with. So I went with her, and I find out that they took the song off, that I was outvoted by the drummer. Uh, in in, uh, somebody who said no we're going to put this song I'm like I was crushed I'm like oh this is I worked so hard on that so it sat you know it sat there for about two months and Frontiers came out came out without that song what's going to happen to my my baby that I worked so hard on well David Geffen heard it and had a movie called Vision Quest he uh, he called my manager and he said I'll I'll give you um, a lot of money for that song I want to use it in my movie. It's going to be the main song. And, you know, Matthew Bodine was a wrestler. And we had we had a rough mix, but we didn't have the final. So we decided to try this new mixer, Bob Clearmountain, out in New York City. So um, we wanted to work with him. So we got a letter from Make-A-Wish Foundation, this new organization that was wishing, you know, sick children, children with uh, illnesses, to, uh, a chance to go somewhere and do things that they wanted to do. And this little boy in Cleveland's Children's Hospital wanted to meet Journey. And I knew we were going to New York. And so the manager said, what do you want to do with this? I said, let's go see him. Let's go see him. You know, and so we contacted the hospital, said, we're coming next week. And we brought, you know, all this 49ers member stuff, helmet, Joe Montana, and everybody signing it, jersey, and a cassette player with the song. It's a rough mix. And we had the Walkman. We put the little headphones on his head and... We said, you know, you're going to be the first Journey fan to ever hear this. And he's just like, oh, wow. So we hit play, and he, he just puts his head back on the pillow, and he's got cystic fibrosis. And he's in the final stages. I mean, it, he can tell he's been battling this thing. It was terrible to see, but that song just lit him up, you know, and his face got all, you know, like this. And, and when the song finished, he kind of just closed his eyes, and he went back and, you know, like he was going to sleep, and we had to take the little headphones off, and then we said goodbye and thanked his parents, and he passed the next day. 
And that song was a Holy Spirit moment. You know, you go, well, that was his song. That was meant for Kenny for such a time as that. You know, that's the only way you can say, well, why did that song get left off the Frontiers album? Well, there it is. And I'm, I was in the midst of it. And uh, it was great. Never forget it. Oh, wait, I turned off the recorder too soon. All right, go ahead. I want to thank everybody for, uh, you know, staying with uh, our band and, uh, and and standing strong with us through the ups and the downs. You know, it's a family, and every family has its quarrels. Every family has its dysfunctional moments. You know, people come and go, and they, you know, and, and yet... For the fans to understand that and have uh, faith and and uh, belief, you know, in the spirit of our music means a lot to me, and I want to thank them all. If you like the book, you can get the audio book on Amazon Audibles. It's available um, as a complete download. It has a lot of original music in it. Um, you can also, there's a companion CD that goes with the book called The Songs You Leave Behind, which is on iTunes. And that is, um, uh, got some great tunes about my life on it. Uh, there's no journey. It's just strictly me and, and the stories that are in the book uh, and the things I went through. Um, I was careful to write about them. I even have a song about my German Shepherd down there. So you dog lovers got to check it out. I got a baptism song. I got a wedding song. Dig it. It's called The Songs You Leave Behind on iTunes. And you read the audiobook, correct? I read. That's me, yeah. I spent five days in this room right here. <laughs> uh, but they liked it. In the end, they like it. So, so I, and, and most people are really enjoying it. Even after they read the book, they're like, hey, I like it with me. And I played some solo piano as well. Um, some of the more dramatic uh, parts of the book sort of give it a little tension. And uh, it came out great. You know, and I had to really pour a lot into it. You know, there was times where I just got choked up, and you know, I I was sobbing a few times because it was there's some sad moments there, and dramatic. So I've lived a life, and you know, I wanted to share it. I think it's uh, my journey to journey is an is an inspirational one, and I wrote this book to encourage and inspire anyone had a dream. And, I, and the takeaway for me is you're not always who they say you are. You're not. You're uniquely you. And don't let anybody tell you you're good enough. Amen? Amen. That's it. Thank you so much, Doug.